Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hello, friends. How are you? I hope you've had a wonderful weekend. I say this because it is Monday morning as I record this, the 22nd of August. And yeah, I hope you've had a good weekend. You've had the chance to maybe nip to the cinema because I think it's something we need to be... Well, I, I want to kind of remind people that although we have this fantastic luxury of having you know, films at the end of a remote control or a button on the end of a screen, we can't take for granted how important and wonderful the cinematic experience can be. And none more so than when we, we hear of, you know, cinemas closing and things like that. It kind of puts the fear of God in me, to be honest. So I just want to remind you all that if and when you can to get out and watch a film on the big screen, because you're doing your bit, not only for yourself in terms of the escapism that it offers and the, the, the wonderful imagination that we see in creative talents that we see on screen, but it's, it's also just doing your bit to, to support the industry, really. So my, uh, my youngest, my oldest, actually, uh, took himself off to watch Dragon Ball at the cinema this weekend, which is getting great reviews, and he absolutely loved it. He's a big fan of anime. So, um, yeah, he came back to tell me how wonderful that was. So it's great. And also, I'm, I, I love the fact that he's continuing my love of nipping off to the cinema on your own. I find it just brilliant because you don't have to answer any questions. You don't have to share your popcorn as well. So, yeah. Anyway, for this week's episode of my podcast, which celebrates the beautiful world of music and film, we've got a composer for you who has been on my wish list for a very long time. Benjamin Walfish has built up a very strong relationship in the industry, perhaps most notably with our dear friend Hans Zimmer, with whom he's collaborated on several projects, including Blade Runner 2049, which after talking to Benjamin and doing this for you guys today, I am off to watch this afternoon. I haven't watched that film in a while and I need to immerse myself in not just the wonderful world of Benjamin, but also Denis Villeneuve. Benjamin's latest outing, however, is on Ron Howard's 13 Lives, which tells the miraculous true story of the boys and the football coach who were rescued from a Thai cave, having been trapped by flooding. It's still out in cinemas, so as I mentioned earlier, why not get yourself along to go and watch it? And we're going to start with one of Benjamin's cues from the film, This is Oxygen.
Great to see you. Oh, <laughs> nice to see you. Um, I had a wonderful time last week with Ron Howard. Oh my God, there was a whole panel of them. It was unbelievable. With some of the real people and Joel was there as well. And I, I, I was talking to Ron beforehand about your amazing score for that because, yeah, it's really, I mean, the story, it's one of those weird things where you know the story. Yeah. You kind of know what's going to happen, but it's it right. doesn't ruin any of it. It doesn't kind of diminish the experience in any way, shape or form. And I was really interested because one of the things that Ron was really quite obviously proud of was the real collaboration that he threw himself into with his cast, not just with the crew, about the authenticity to the culture. And I feel that in the music and I feel that, you know, at times within, you know, what you've created within that. So I was really interested, knowing that I was getting the chance to chat to you, was to talk about that. But where was the starting point with this and how important was that journey for you with that whole kind of embracing of the culture and the authenticity of the culture as well? I mean, it was absolutely central to the whole process. And I think almost every single time I presented me music to run it was that was the first question is how are we honoring the place the people the culture the history and also i mean one of the very first conversations i had with ron which is whilst he was shooting is this question of it you know how to make it feel cinematic but also journalistic so that the audience are right in the middle of it and mm. to to your point where almost everyone watching the movie knows the outcome but we wanted the audience to experience it almost in real time so that the kind of miraculous nature of what unfolded is kind of something you experience physically almost, not just intellectually. And we had a lot of conversations, really interesting, philosophical, just incredibly inspiring. I mean, Ron is just such an inspiring person, obviously. He's amazing, <laughs> isn't he? I mean, it's, it's the first time I've worked with him and not only such a kind and generous artists but just so enabling and 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 challenging too the gauntlets he throws down are are big and one of the things that was super inspiring was you know he sort of commented i just had this idea which is this whole thing is a test uh, and also this other thing which really stuck is this idea of it being the movie almost being like an, an anatomy of a miracle where we break down the process of something which brings out the best in humanity yeah but what we actually see is so against the odds that if someone were to write a fictional book or a fictional screenplay, it would just be, oh, this is just silly because it's so extraordinary, obviously. And so how that all applies to the music is it was really hard to find an, an, an in. Um, but this idea of anatomy of a miracle really played on this. Well, it sort of played to this idea of how important spirituality is to the to the people of Thailand and, and in particular, the local people. Because uh, I was doing a lot of research into... Uh, obviously, Thai music, folk music, the instruments. Uh, and I discovered that there was this huge, I mean, it's just such a rich history and it's so region specific. And and also combining that with the, the place where it took mm. place, the, the Thamlong um, Cave being part of the Doi Nang Nong mountain range. So that's the Sleeping Princess. Nang Nong is the name of this, you, you know, the history of this. And, and the, you know, from a, from a distance, there's a silhouette of, uh, of a sleeping woman when you see the the mountain range there. And the locals at the time that these events unfolded said that the princess was angry. 
and mm-hmm. the flood was caused by her tears. And as soon as I found that out, that suddenly, wow. that was the first way into the score. Because that's that point I was really struggling with. You know, how do we, we didn't want to, I mean, this is so unbelievably heroic, but we can't be heroic in the music. Yeah. We can't take the audience out of the experience of being inside. You know, we can't necessarily do the normal tropes of a thriller score where, where obviously time is ticking down. That's the principal thing. But the last thing we want to do is all of those normal thriller tropes. Um, yeah. So as soon as that came through our conversations, the very first thing was uh, finding a theme for the, for the cave itself the sleeping princess theme. And, and of course I didn't want to write that because what right do I have to write something <laughs> so integral to the place and the culture and the people. So at that point I had been put in touch with an incredible time musicologist called Nat Bantita, who's also an amazing singer. And she turned me on to a, an amazing song from probably four or 500 years ago. Wow. Which became the beginnings of what we called the Sleeping Princess theme. It's a song called So Long Nan. And it's about the, the words deal with this idea of the flow of a river being a metaphor for life, you know, always moving in one direction. And as soon as that melody, I, I brought that into my, you know, just put it on the piano and started playing with it and seeing how we could reharmonize it. You hear it in its entirety in the end credits, just using little snippets of it here and there, not as a kind of main theme, but just to have this sense of, an angry presence, you know, something dark and dangerous in the first half of the film. But when the test has been met and the first boy is rescued, that's when you start to hear that tune in a different light. And then it eventually becomes the, the, the end credits piece. But it was all very important that not just not just using Thai instruments, but using music from the specific region. And, and Nat sings it, um, and she sings it in the in the the dialect of uh, that exact area. I got to work with some unbelievable artists and musicians in Bangkok, and I didn't want to write anything. It was all about just getting a ton of traditional folk music and just experimenting with it. And a lot of that made its way into the more experimental side of the score, the more electronic. 
darker side where you hear these Thai instruments like the the kuli, which is sort of like a flute-like instrument, or the khan, which is this sort of enormous mouth organ, as if it's underwater. And combining that with things like you know the tapping and scraping of oxygen canisters and a sound of air escaping and turning that into rhythmic patterns. So it's all kind of of the place. And the rain as well, the water, it's yeah. kind of, yeah. the, the sound, that's what's so wonderful is that kind of beautiful relationship and collaboration, I guess, between, you know, what we see and what we hear and what you've created. It's seamless almost between that relationship between all of it. Yeah, yeah. And another interesting thing was um, thinking a lot about how the, the rescue effort was led by British divers. So I also wanted to incorporate British musicians into the score as a kind of featured elements. So you have the Thai featured musicians and the British featured musicians as analog to that. So there's a cello solo, which was, um, you only hear it once the first boy is rescued. That's the first time. And Tim Hugh played that beautifully and Hugh Watkins piano as well. So that there's a sort of sense of international collaboration too. Is it about the cello? There's something about the cello that has this quality. I don't know what it is about it, but it's kind of there is I don't know whether it's that thing because of the size of it and how it's played, in terms of you're almost kind of yeah. embracing it in a way. I, I kind of can't escape it because like everyone in my family plays the cello. <laughs> my my dad, my grandma, my brother, 
<laughs> so I grew up with cello literally being played every single day of my childhood being practiced. And but it's good you still love a, it then. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very familiar sound. I think growing up with that, you, you do associate it with warmth and home. And I think it's very similar to the human voice. And of course, it's range because it can be so expressive in the higher range, but also incredibly dark. And also when you have, you know, 20 of them playing rhythmically, it's more powerful and driving than any, any drums can be. Yeah, it's an incredible instrument. And uh, I, I think it's just has that soulful human humanity. Yeah. Which really lends itself to this kind of writing. You said that this is the first time you've worked with, with Ron. And I was just interested to, to ask whether you inquired as to if there is, you know, is a collection of your work that he connected to or, you know, what was the reason for you being the right person for the job, if that's a conversation you have at all? Well, it was one of those incredible phone calls I, I got to know with, uh, I got to know um, the guys over at MGM and it, I think it was just simply, we got a call to submit a showreel on this project and it was very sort of secret what the project was and uh, and we sent in just a selection of my tracks and, and that led to uh, a phone call. Um, I, I know that Hans, my dear friend Hans Zimmer recommended me to Ron, which I think was one of the, the, the biggest things that helped, uh, of course, and I'm very grateful for that. And there was a, um, uh, a real sense of, um, I mean, look, when you meet one of your heroes, it's, it's pretty, pretty terrifying. I mean, I remember uh, yeah. that first phone call, I've, I've, you know, been in love with Ron's movie since I was a kid, like, like all of us. And, but it, it's just, he immediately breaks through all of that. And we just started talking about emotion and the feeling and, and, and the authenticity that was, that was, I think the, within five minutes, that was mm. the, the first thing we spoke about. And, and, um, and I went away and just absorbed what he spoke, what we spoke about and read the script. And uh, actually, no, I had already read the script by that point before our first conversation. And, and we just had a great chat. And a couple of weeks later, the call came in and I was, I was brought onto the film and it was an amazing, amazing moment, of course. And, I just jumped right in and they were still shooting at that point and I was uh, didn't want to wait. So I started writing some suites and getting some initial ideas moving. And then they were cutting in London. So we moved, I moved my whole family over to London for four months and for my little girl into, into British school, which was really cool. She loved that. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. And uh, yeah, she was doing like eight or nine hour days. Very different to the US system. Here they have preschool. Yeah. She, she was at that time, she was three, just turned four, which is like a four hour day, three hour day. And this is like old school, eight hours with desks <laughs> yeah. and uniforms. And she, she loved it. But yeah, we, we, it ended up pretty much, uh, I, I set up a studio with uh, probably five doors down or just a couple of blocks away from Ron's cutting rooms. And perfect. We met at least twice a week for, for a long time and just, uh, got into the absolute granular. I mean, it was one of the hardest things just to find the right tone. You know, if I wrote a sort of film music cue, it just didn't work. (laughs) It sort of had to be, it had to be something very specific and also quite subtle and minimal, but in a way, one of the hardest things actually was starting at the beginning. And Mm -hmm. soon uh, we realized starting in the middle, working towards the end and then coming back to the beginning was the way.
It's so brilliant to look at the diverse nature of the work that you have done so far to this point. You know, it's very exciting to see what's to come. But in terms of the kind of variety of, you know, kind of genre that you've you've worked on, it's it's wonderful to kind of look back and kind of celebrate that everything from, uh, you know, it to Blade Runner and then Hidden Figures, which I just love that film so much. Such an important film. It must be lovely as a as a creative to to have that kind of broad scope of things because it's so easy for people to put people in a box and go they do this sure. and it's so wonderful to kind of to kind of see you know kind of people flourish outside of that and kind of defy that kind of expectation almost in a way Shazam as well I mean just you know everything all those different types of films oh thank you so much I mean. I admit, yeah, I, I feel very lucky that um, the filmmakers I work with are so themselves just so open to working in all kinds of different genres and, you know, take me along for the ride, you know, working with David Sandberg, you know, absolute genius filmmaker on, on those horror movies like Annabelle um, and Lights Out. And then we completely do a 180 and do a, a Shazam, you know, which is this incredibly fun, uplifting or from a kid's point of view, you know, what, what would happen if you put a teenager in front of a symphony orchestra and say, you can do anything you want. And then, you know, Andy Muschietti, of course, we're, we're currently, we're just finishing off the flash now. We're about oh. to go record that. And, um, and uh, oh, so yeah. Exciting. He's great. Yeah, the, he's an amazing guy. I love chatting to Andy. He's so brilliant. Yeah. He's incredible. He's so, like David, he's so musical. And we're just, you know, it starts from a friendship and this sort of trust that you get from working on multiple films together. And again, just the ability to go from, it to the flash and it's but there's this sort of intensity of the storytelling and the emotion and the power of this character building and all that it sort of defies genre really it's as long as that's in place why those horror movies are so like gave me such so much to work with musically it wasn't just about scaring people in fact they're adventure films you know with with some pretty intense scary moments but at its heart it's about those kids
And of course, I've been unbelievably lucky to be mentored by Hans over those seven years. So I was at remote control and have those opportunities to work on movies like Blade Runner and Hidden Figures, which just completely changed my life uh, musically, you know, just very, um, just working with filmmakers like Denis Villeneuve and Ted Melfi is a, such an honor. So no, I, I'm just very lucky to, to make noise every day and get paid to do so. And, you know, keep, yeah, I'm just I'm very, very lucky. <laughs> you know, I've been lucky. I've only tried to hands a few times, and it's just so interesting because I spoke to so many directors that had worked with him about him prior to getting the chance to meet him. And they all sort of circled the same description of him in terms of his kind of childlike enthusiasm and lust for his his craft and constant kind of challenging of himself in a way as well. And right. but, but one of the things he also said was about how he's very generous and he's so encouraging of, of you know, new creatives and, and, and also giving people the recognition that they deserve as well. And he just seems like a very kind of encouraging and generous man when it comes to new composers coming through. Like you talked to, you know, you just mentioned there about being encouraged by him and being recommended you know, buy him to other directors and stuff. That's kind of, it's so encouraging to hear, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely. And and I think one of the things Hans does brilliantly is kind of meet you where you're at and puts you into situations where you, you either completely sink or you, or you develop and, and thrive. And I mean, when I met Hans, this was in, this is 10 years ago. Honestly, I'd only done a couple of features at this point. I'd done a lot of orchestration for Dario Marinelli and I was kind of trying to figure out like, what am I actually doing? Am I trying to be a conductor? Mm-hmm. Am I trying to be a gospel composer? I, but I loved film music. That was my, always been my number one passion since I was a kid. And he sat me down very early on in our chats. I mean, this is after we, we'd connected and he just said, look, are you a composer or are you a conductor? You, you can't do both. And it's, and, it was, and it's true. I mean, that both of those professions require 150% of your brain. And then going from there, it wasn't just a case of, okay, so you can write music. Great. It was, it was actually being a filmmaker who writes music. Uh, and, 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 like, and this constantly, this constant searching for a fresh approach, a challenge, never sort of doing a version of what you're comfortable with. Probably one of the most critical things, important things Hans did very early on was put me in front of Gore Vinsky, put me in a room with Gore, uh, which results in a cure for wellness, which was, again, I was working on that in 2015 through 16. And that was, uh, I mean, it was basically like going to, going to film school, like every day having a masterclass because Gore insisted that I was physically in his cutting rooms. Like wow. he, we were in the same building. And he would, it was, I was basically in this kind of very tiny room with my rig with a, and had a glass wall and no soundproofing. And so every day I'd be working away, trying to not disturb people. And, and uh, Gore would just walk past sort of going like this or like this, you know, just kind of, <laughs> so there'd be this. Wow. Thumbs constant, up, thumbs down. That's all you get. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, but, but no, it wasn't. It was actually in addition to that, then, you know, he would come in and we'd spend a couple of hours together almost every day. Wow. And you know, he'd obviously give me his notes on the cues, but it was more just being able to watch him cut and watch how he really crafted a film from the very beginning, from the rushes mm. to the director's cut through fine cut. I'd never seen that process with my own eyes before. And, and also he didn't want to use any temp. So there was this 
it, the whole process took about 10 months where I was in his cutting rooms and he wouldn't actually show me the movie uh, until about halfway through that. But he just asked me to constantly write suites of music away from picture, which he would then use as temp. And then I got oh, to see wow. the, the scenes with this, these edited suites, which yeah. I then turned into use. But again, it was just this um, very intense filmmaking experience. And, and yeah, when I came out the other side, Hans said, oh, I just sent you to film school, <laughs> which it really was. And ever since then, it was a, uh, you know, I, I, f- I felt like I could just about justify being in the room with filmmakers at that level. You were making some, you know, The Escapist with Rupert. I love that film and I love that score. And my lovely friend, Ron Scapello as well. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Well, the funny thing is that Escapist is the reason Hans and I connected because he, he randomly heard that one day, wrote to me, and I nearly didn't get the email, which is quite funny. As far as he, he was concerned, I just didn't reply to him. <laughs> but he'd actually written to someone else with a similar email address to mine. And but eventually we, we did connect. Uh, it was, it was the first, he's, he does the story much better than I do. But uh, yeah, it was, it was the escapist that, that I would, without that score, I would never have met Hans. talk just for a couple of minutes before we run out of time about Blade Runner because I'm such a fan of Denis I adore that man and I just think uh he's so modest about his work and and I know that Blade Mm. Runner was such a big thing for him as well not quite as much as as June is in terms of the personal connection he has with that but I thought you all was a collective did a phenomenal job I love that film for me it gave me everything that I needed as a kind of film fan who you know, kind of came across that the original film as a teenager, you know, years after it was released, it was kind of like, it was my ending almost in a way that I needed and I loved. Um, Mm -hmm. But when you go into something that has a kind of existence already in a way, you know, there's a kind of, I guess there's a foundation there of, of something or an expectation and collaborating with that and working with it and with the, you know, with the filmmakers and, and stuff was that, how was that in terms of what was going to be the final kind of sound of of Blade Runner 2049. It was incredibly collaborative and just one of the most uh, inspiring things I've ever experienced where Hans, myself, Joe Walker and Denis would be 
trying out. I mean, the, the, the very first couple of meetings we had, we'd be just trying out ideas. Hans and I would be jamming. Hans would come up. Be on guitar? Would he be on guitar? Oh, I can't play guitar. Um, no, would he be on guitar? Just, Hans seems to be, every uh, time everyone talks about Hans, it's like, He's a closet guitarist. He just wants to be a guitarist oh, in a rock band. <laughs> well, no, we were very much on synths. But, I mean, the, the key thing to that was how do we honor Vangelis' legacy but completely rethink it for this brand new yeah. story and also completely new aesthetic. And a big part of the process was creating a sound world, obviously exclusively using synthesizers. Whenever we tried to use a string orchestra, it just didn't work. importantly this this character you know Kay's character and and his journey it's such an existential story and this idea of what is the soul what is a soul and and it's a puzzle which keeps getting it's like a maze which layers keep getting added in three dimensions and there's this beautiful theme which Hans wrote which became the Mesa theme and I came up with these piano chords and and this kind of four note horse motif uh, which every time there's a kind of twist or turn or in intensification of the puzzle you hear this like a kind of sign like a pillar mm. uh, in the you know structural pillar in the score and and these piano chords this we call that the puzzle motif but ultimately the this incredibly beautiful slow burning pace of, of, of uh, the way that joe cut it and there, there's there's so much there on the screen which where the music really it, it was so clear what was needed and denise just the most inspiring filmmaker and, and his, mm. I think the thing which I, I mean, I, I was just so honored to be in that room for three or four months to just follow his lead and, and, uh, and, and with Hans, I mean, Hans has these brilliant insights, of course, uh, but it's always left field. Uh, there was this moment I remember where we, we were trying to grapple with the seawall sequence at the end of the film. And I'd come up with this very intense sort of action thing because it's such a physical scene and just wasn't working and and there was this suite which come up i mean we, we probably worked on that from the very beginning and quite slow and just long evolving melody this four note horse theme and just mm. turning it into something kind of gargantuan and he just put that there <laughs> yeah. so really yeah hit play <laughs> and suddenly there it was and that became the seawall cue
And, you know, so those kind of moments of insight um, are, are amazing. And the whole thing felt like a, just this dream situation. And I think, look, in the moment, we had three months to come up with this score. And of course, it's Blade Runner. And, you know, it's very easy to get spooked. So it was, at the time, it was just, there was none of this kind of grand philosophizing of, oh my God, this is Blade Runner. This is such mm. a big deal. It was just, get on with how, it. What, what does this need? Because of course, Vangelis' score is, is so intrinsic. We're talking about not only one of those iconic scores, but just how it defines the feeling of a film or the, mm. the, the sense of the film. So, you know, there was this wonderful moment where Hans brought out his CS80, which is this Yamaha synth. There's probably only about four or 500 left in the world. It's this huge, enormous, extremely heavy, very volatile, quite grumpy machine that I think it literally, if you plug the wrong, like if you plug a stain pedal into the wrong plug, it catches on fire. Like Hans kept telling me. <laughs> I mean, the sound from this thing, it's like a symphony orchestra. You just press one note. It's coming out in mono. So you put it through a, you know, a harmonizer, some delays, some, re, you know, a massive chorus reverb. And you're like, we are suddenly in Los Angeles yeah. 2019. Ridley Scott and there is just it's palpable and, mm. and then you start okay let's put some rig mod let's then and we were also experimenting with um, a lot of other synths modern synths the, the Zebra Yuhei uh, Zebra plugin was hugely important to the overall sound the Diva as well and also the uh, Prophet 12 the best toy shop ever I was lucky enough to meet Joe actually and I'd love to get Joe on the podcast that's my aim actually I'm going to try and make that happen because he's he's brilliant he's such I loved spending time with him he was fantastic it's amazing I mean Joe and I go back 15 years now wow. I mean, the escapist was the first project we did together amazing uh, then life in a day and and I think he he goes back much further with hands like back to the 80s I believe wow so yeah, Joe is an incredible filmmaker. Also, he's a composer, so his his editing is so musical. The rhythm of it, the flow mm-hmm. of it, it was one of those movies where you watch a scene and it's, you can immediately hear what what it needs. That, that, and that's probably why it was possible to do it in three months because it just it felt so musical, so so powerful. Well, listen, I'm going to let you go for now, but I'm hoping that Flash is going to be next year. Is that right? 2023, hopefully. Yes. So from now. Can we um can we put a, a kind of a, a date number two for our yep. next episode so that we can talk more about that, but Absolutely. also look back at some other projects as well? Because it's been a, such a treat to get to chat to you finally, Benjamin. Likewise. Well, thanks yeah. for the invite. Thank you so Let's much, lovely. Have a great day. <laughs> Bye.
From the score to 13 lives, that's the title track, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the wonderful Benjamin Wolfish. My huge thanks to Benjamin for taking the time to talk to us. 13 Lives is available still at cinemas as well now, but also to stream on Amazon Prime. If you want to hear my chats with Ron Howard, Hans Zimmer and Andy Muschietti, and of course, Mr. Denis Villeneuve, you can head to edithbowman.com where you can also listen to every single episode of the podcast and subscribe. Send me an email to info at edithbowman.com and you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. Next up, we continue what's been a regular thread of bringing together director and composer to talk about the latest project. And we do that next with Emma Holly-Jones, who has her kind of full-length feature directorial debut with the wonderful and hilarious Mr. Malcolm's List. And she is joined by her composer, and we're thrilled to welcome back Amelia Warner. Emma Holly-Jones and Amelia Warner talking Mr. Malcolm's List, which is out in cinemas on the 26th of August. That's this coming Friday, so go and see it. It's beautiful and funny and wonderful. And you can hear Emma and Amelia on next week's episode. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.